Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. While the search for a vaccine for COVID-19 continues, other scientists are focused on finding therapeutic treatments. Could existing drugs provide the answer? Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and also coming up on today's show. How can wireless signals maintain a fast and reliable connection? The winner of this year's Marconi Prize explains her innovative technique. What I invented was a way to say, you should send the amount of data commensurate with how much the channel can support. And the benefits of putting the wiggle back into rivers. The bends and the meanders offer a sort of filtering system because sediment in the water has more time to drop out and sort of deposit at the bottom of the river. But first, when COVID-19 began its spread across the world, so too did the hunt for treatment. Not only would it save lives, it would allow countries to relax their lockdowns. Rather than start the search from scratch, researchers' attention had turned to drugs which could be repurposed. In America, regulators have granted emergency use permission to remdesivir, a drug created to tackle Ebola. Remdesivir seems to work. That's why it's being talked about as potential treatment. Natasha Loder is our health policy editor. The evidence that has been presented to us from the National Institutes of Health in America suggests that if you give it to patients who are in hospital and quite unwell with uh, COVID-19, that their recovery time improves from about 15 days on average to about 11 days. That's not huge, but it is a significant difference and one that will help patients and also hospitals who have a high burden of patients in their facilities. So what actually is it as a drug and how does it work? It's called a nucleotide analogue and the structure of the molecule mimics one of the chemical letters that is used to make up the genetic code of the virus. The genetic code of the virus is actually an RNA molecule, um, which is actually very, very similar to DNA. It's a sort of ill-fitting chemical letter that when the virus is replicating, it takes up this chemical letter and it actually kind of gums up the virus's replication mechanisms. Now, the full data hasn't yet been released, so how confident are the researchers in its effectiveness? On the one hand, the information we're getting is coming from the NIH, which is a sort of unimpeachable, as far as I'm concerned, government source in America. On the other hand, we haven't seen the actual data from the patients, which would allow us to check that the placebo group was well matched to the trial group. And why is that important? So when you run a clinical trial, obviously you have a group that's treated and a group that isn't treated. And at the end of the trial, you say, did the group that were treated do better? 
And in this case, the answer is yes, they did. But then you have to kind of ask the second question. And the second question is, are the patients in the, the group that didn't receive the drug the same as the group that did? Now, if you randomized it, you would expect that to be so, but it's not always the case. You may find that for one reason or another, that actually you have sicker patients perhaps in one group. So that information hasn't been released. So we can't check it. So that's one problem. Another problem with not having the data is that doctors can't scrutinize it and sort of see, you know, which patients did really well on the drug, you know, what stage were they at when they were given it. And, you know, doctors would really like to know that information so that they can decide how best to give the drug. So is the drug going to be rolled out on a mass scale? Well, this is a really interesting question. And what we know is that there's not a lot of it. This was a drug which was in development as an experimental drug for Ebola. And as an experimental drug, you know, Gilead, who make it, didn't make vast quantities of it. You know, their goal is to have a million courses of the drug by the end of the year. Now, that sounds like a lot, but in the face of an ongoing pandemic, it probably isn't. And then you also have a question of, you know, I'm sorry to say, which countries are going to get it? Some of the researchers in Britain uh, that have been speaking about it don't sound very optimistic that they're going to get access beyond clinical trials. They think it's going to be a problem. And, you know, I have seen some reports of attempts by America to get hold of quite a lot of this drug. So what are the treatments are in development? I think it's useful to think about remdesivir as just the first of many treatments that we might actually end up using against COVID-19. And in fact, what some people say is that they expect COVID-19 to ultimately be defeated by a sort of combination therapy. And that's what we've seen in many other diseases is that actually, as with HIV, it was multiple antivirals. And so what people are wondering now is, well, can we combine remdesivir with something else, another antiviral or an anti-inflammatory drug. There's been a trial of a drug called Actemra, which is an anti-inflammatory drug. And, you know, this trial in uh, France was very positive. And, you know, what it actually showed is that when you give this drug to patients who are severely ill with COVID-19, that it actually can save lives. And how is it that Actemra actually works? So one of the things that happens in the patients that are most seriously affected by COVID-19 is that there's an overreaction of their immune system to the virus. And this causes massive damage to the lungs. It causes respiratory failure. And you know, at some point during the course of the disease, the immune reaction, which you depend on to defend against the virus, is actually damaging you, the patient. And that's what this drug does. It's a, a molecule, it's an antibody that attaches itself to one of these signaling molecules in the immune system, a cytokine, and it just, it blocks it. And so that helps tamp down the immune reaction. So it sounds like while some researchers are trying to develop new drugs, there's a lot of interesting optimism around drugs that already exist. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of uh, time to be saved by repurposing a drug that's already in the medicine cabinet, whether it's been approved for something else already, or like remdesivir has been tested 
in another disease and we have some safety information about it. So yeah, there's a lot of time saving there. But at the same time, we can also accelerate the timeline for novel drugs as well. Okay. Natasha, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ken. You can read more about the search for COVID-19 treatments in the upcoming edition of The Economist. And to subscribe, go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next, the COVID-19 outbreak means that more of us than ever are relying on the internet to work, play and socialize. Crucial to this is a strong, stable and fast internet connection. But how do you guarantee that? That's a question that Andrea Goldsmith has dedicated her career to answering. Her work in wireless communications engineering has enabled billions of people around the world to enjoy a quick and reliable wireless service. My invention recognized the fact that wireless communication is unreliable, as we experience every day when we're walking around or driving in our cars and trying to talk on our cell phones. Andrea is an engineering professor at Stanford, and she's the newly appointed dean of Princeton University's engineering school. She co-founded and served as the chief technical officer for Quantana Communications and Plume Wi-Fi. And she is the winner of this year's Marconi Prize, which recognizes achievements in the field of communications. She is the first woman to win the prize in its 45-year history. At least with wireless channels, a tree can be in the way between the base station that's sending your phone a signal and where you're standing. Or somebody else is using their phone close to you and they're using the same channel, so they interfere with you. So basically I created a way for the signaling technology to adapt to these changes in a way to ensure that the communication is more reliable. Now, I'm a little bit unclear what you actually invented that actually solved the problem. So what I invented was a way to change the rate at which we send data to match what the channel can support. So one way people can understand this is when you're using your phone and you look at the number of bars that you have, that's basically telling you, do you have a good channel when you have a lot of bars or do you have a bad channel when you don't have a lot of bars? If you tried to push the same amount of data through the channel, regardless of whether you have a lot of bars or not a lot of bars, you're going to start dropping that data because the channel just can't support it. It's like trying to push a lot of people through a very narrow entryway, they're going to get stuck. So what I invented was a way to say, depending on the size of that doorway or depending on how good the channel is, you should send the amount of data commensurate with how much the channel can support. And that's this notion of adaptive modulation, which is now used in your cell phone, in your Wi-Fi, in pretty much all wireless communication devices, which says, okay, what's the size of the doorway? How much data can I get through the channel? That's the amount of data that I will send. You've been working on chemical communications, which can be used for applications where radio waves might not be desired, like medical devices inside the body. How does that work? When you are trying to communicate in an environment like inside the body where electromagnetic waves may damage the organs or may not propagate very well through the bloodstream, 
we can use other ways to embed data into the signals. So the idea of chemical communication, and there's a very easy way to describe it, is that we're sending bits. So bits is how we encode data. They're ones and zeros. That's what travels through our phones and our computers in terms of information being stored digitally. So how would I embed a one or a zero into a chemical communication system? Well, a good way to do it, and this was the first generation of our chemical communication system, was using vodka and something called on-off keying, which means that if there's a one bit, you send a spritz of vodka through the channel. And if there's a zero bit, you don't send any vodka. And then you can use a breathalyzer on the other end to detect is there vodka or is there not vodka? So that's the basic notion of chemical communication is you use chemicals to embed these bits, these ones and zeros, and then use a chemical detector at the receiver to determine was there vodka or was there no vodka, or you can use a more sophisticated set of chemicals and set of detectors to do higher performance chemical communication. Okay, so I, I, we're on the bars theme and alcohol theme, but let's 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 deviate from that, sadly, and look specifically at what sort of devices might be created by using this form of chemical communication. So, to me, the most compelling application of chemical communication is for biomedical devices that sit inside the body. So, you could think about suppose you have. Uh, artificial organ that is somehow malfunctioning. It needs some kind of an adjustment. Well, you could send via this chemical communication system instructions to, say, adjust the rate of the artificial heart. Now, your work has other medical implications, such as research on the brain as a communications network. Explain that. My research was looking at epileptic seizures to say when you have an epileptic seizure, the way that it happens is that there's a certain region of the brain where basically the neuron or a group of neurons start to oscillate in unpredictable ways. And eventually this signal propagates out to so many neurons that you have an epileptic seizure. So the work that we did was to say, can we identify where that epileptic seizure started. It's a causal signal that's evolving over time. If you can kind of reverse engineer the signal, you can go back to figure out where it started. So that was our work in epilepsy. And we actually developed an algorithm to identify the seizure on its own. And we tested it on some publicly available data. And we were actually able to beat the doctors in this small data set just by looking at the ECOG data and using their experience, ECOG data or the sensors that sit on the surface of the brain to measure these signals. So there's many, many exciting implications of understanding how the brain communication works and using traditional electrical engineering, communication signal processing and control to basically make people's lives better that are suffering from these diseases. Now, the wireless communications industry has developed a lot since you began your work. So let me be incredibly unfair and ask you, what does the future look like? What does 7G look like? I think 7G will look like everything with an on-off switch can be connected to everything else with an on-off switch and connected to the internet. 
and how we're going to use that as a platform to create smart cities, create environments where people that are at risk, either because they're elderly or they're sick, can be monitored. We'll have a lot more telemedicine. We're already seeing that now with the COVID crisis, but people won't need to go to the doctor to get an annual checkup because they will have devices on their bodies that are monitoring them constantly and sending that information only when relevant to their doctor to get some immediate treatment. I think that we'll see massive collection of data for energy efficiency, for monitoring climate change, and hopefully addressing some of the issues of climate change because we'll have a much better understanding of what's happening. And even in the COVID crisis, if we had much more pervasive sensing and processing of that data, I think we would have been able to avoid or at least better track the spread of the disease and address it a lot more quickly than we've been able to. Andrea Goldsmith, thank you very much for this interview over the wireless internet. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. And finally, for centuries across Britain, people have had to modify the land to make their living. In particular, farmers who wanted to maximize the potential of their fields began to straighten the bends in rivers. They did this to dry out their meadows. But now, some people are hoping they can give the rivers their squirmy, wormy wiggle back. Katrine Brahek is the Economist Environment Editor. Hello, Katrine. Hello, Ken. Katrine, in the weeks before the COVID-19 lockdown, you went on a little trip. Where did you go and what did you visit? Yeah, so I think this was in the very first week of March, and I think it was the last time I got on a train, the last time I even left London. I went up very early one morning to the Lake District in Cumbria, in particular to a sort of high suspended valley called the Swindell Valley, which was just incredibly beautiful, snow-capped hilltops and a sort of picturesque, almost picture-perfect meandering river coming down from the hills. And why did you go there? I went up to meet Lee Schofield from the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. And Lee and the RSPB are managing a farm up there in a bit of an experimental way. And in particular, they have been putting the wiggle back in the Swindale Beck, which is this river that flows through the valley. So this is a bit of the old channel. Huh. Um, it had this sort of slow bend around there, but it was pretty much pretty much straight. Um, you know, going way, way back, this valley bottom would have been a mosaic of wet woodland and fen. Um, and slowly, over generations and generations, it would have been slowly improved. You know, rocks would have been removed, trees would have been felled, the land would have been levelled to create hay meadows 
to give the people here an insurance to see them through the winter basically so um you know nothing's growing through the winter up here so they cut the hay put it in the barns that's what keeps our livestock alive through the winter until things start growing again right um one of the things they did in order to kind of reduce the risk of summer flooding in those meadows was to straighten the river and katrine what effect did the straightening of the rivers have on the local environment so a straight river or a straightened river rather literally flows faster through the environment so it's moving faster it's carrying more stuff more debris rocks gravel etc downstream and the other thing is that as this happens the banks tend to build up on either side and so while initially you do have this effect that the farmers were looking of helping to move the water out of the floodplains and into the river, eventually what happens is on the rare occasions where you do have a flood, the water manages to break through these heightened banks, escapes into the floodplain, and then because of these higher banks, the water can't actually get back in. And so it has the reverse effect. It actually kind of traps the water on the floodplains which is why they've decided to restore the river. The basic approach is you just remove the overburden, the soil and the turf, and you expose river gravel underneath. This is a designed system. So the environment agencies, geomorphologists, did a whole load of calculations, worked out how much water was coming down, how wide the beck needed to be, how bendy it should be. And so our contractors basically just dug that channel on following that map. Right. So the other approach is that you just block the river and you allow it just to kind of rip through here and find its own way and we probably would have ended up with multiple channels over the surface Amazing. these meadows are um also a site of special scientific interest so right. um, these are designated um as species rich hay meadows so you know we had to maintain those as well so that that kind of hands-off approach wasn't really an option for us right so the contractors basically just dug this very raw channel. They didn't put any features in. The The idea was that the water comes through and, and does all that kind of detail yeah. by itself. Yeah. When we connected the river up at the top end to kind of plug it into its new system, everyone was, you know, kind of nervous. And the day after we did it, there was this massive storm event. Um, it was the middle of August and it rained solidly for about 48 hours. We were concerned you know we've got these unconsolidated river banks right. you know what's going to happen when we come back and we came back in on the monday morning after the water had abated and the whole valley was just completely underwater our soil pile over there which is where that that rushy stuff was we were thinking this is going to just like get washed away oh. and we came back 40 hours later and we basically just found this really so with the gravel it all just arrived by itself so <laughs> hundreds of thousands of tons probably of material had just been transported down through the system I mean, we didn't find exactly this. This has kind of morphed over time. And each time there's a big event, it kind of shifts itself around a little bit more. So these banks are naturally formed. This was just... Yeah, this was just like a big hole, basically. So all of that silty stuff that was taken off downstream, and we've been monitoring the the bed further downstream in several points to make sure that we hadn't created any problems. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it all just went back to normal within within, um, a few short months. Hmm. So having given the river its wiggle back, has that made a difference? 
it's had a huge impact on the river. A meandering river compared to a straight river is literally longer, right? A wandering line, a wiggly line is longer than a straight line. You have fast bits and slow bits. In the fast bits, you might get rapids where you have oxygen being bubbled into the river. The bends and the meanders offer a sort of filtering system because sediment in the water has more time to drop out and sort of deposit at the bottom of the river. So as the water comes out of the valley, it's kind of pre-filtered. And generally, you have a greater diversity of ecological niches for a greater diversity of wildlife. So just upstream from a riffle, where the oxygen is basically kind of being pulled down through, where you've got these smaller areas of gravel, that's a kind of classic location for salmon spawning. In the old section of the beck that's now been infilled, there was absolutely no opportunity for salmon to, to spawn at all. Because um, Do they need slightly slower water? Because this is sort of slowing down before it gets faster it's, again. It's the size of the gravel that's the, the oh, key okay. thing. So basically they make a nest called a red. Yeah. Um, they sweep aside a little hole, they lay their yeah. eggs into it and they cover it back over oh, again. So really big material like that, they can't really move. So the way that the gravel gets sorted so yeah, in the slower flowing areas, you yeah. tend to get the smaller gravel dropping out. So yeah, there was nowhere that they could have spawned in the old channel. About three months after the diggers left site in whatever September time, um, we saw salmon spawning in the in the new <laughs> bed. So incredible. just an amazingly fast response. Where were response. they hanging out? They've yeah. always spawned in the valley somewhere, but not in this section yeah. of the valley. It seems like there's been a lot of benefits. Has there been any opposition to the scheme? Yeah, so it hasn't been completely plain sailing. On the one hand, they're getting some opposition, some kickback from local farmers. I think in general, the idea is that it's difficult to tell people whose parents, grandparents and many generations before that have been using and living off the land, how they should conduct themselves and use the land. So changing that kind of cultural aspect is quite difficult. And then added on top of that, the Lake District is a World Heritage Site, which puts an onus on preserving the cultural identity of the landscape, and that's a farmed identity. And so again, it's sort of this question of, do you preserve the history of a valley as a straight river valley, and and you maintain that at all costs? Or do you think that in a sort of progressive way and think, perhaps there's a better way of going about the management of the landscape. Katrine Brahek, thank you for your straight answers to my meandering questions. <laughs> thank you, Ken. And our thanks too to Lee Schofield. That's all for this episode of Babbage. Thank you for listening. And while you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? 
Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.